Father, we thank you that you are a God who indeed speaks to us, who wants us to know you, who wants us uh, to grow in Christ's likeness. That we thank you for your word that we have heard. And my prayer now is that as we meditate on that truth, uh, that I would speak worthily uh, of you, that I would speak worthily of Christ, Lord, that our hearts would hear, that we would receive uh, your word, that you would fulfill, Lord, your purpose. And the purpose of your word to bring about that change and transformation. Amen. Okay. See how this goes. Uh, so, what does it mean to be successful? I mean, that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. What, what does success look like? Because we live in a culture uh, that is driven by achievement and success. Now, we are wired in many ways, for achievement and success. You may well be sitting here this morning and thinking, well, I, I'm not a success-driven person. I, I'm not interested, you know, in getting the best grades at school, the best exams. I'm not interested in being top of the business. I'm not interested in having the best house or the best car. Now, so I'm not, I'm not driven by success. Now, it may just well be that those things aren't how you define success. I think we're all driven by success. Success for you might look like success in your health, success in your relationships, success with your family. I mean, just think about it. After this service, I imagine most of us are going to go home. We're going to have a meal. Now, you are hoping for success in the sense that that food is either not going to be frozen or burnt to a crisp. Now, you want to be successful. Now, we'll have different measures of success. But no one sets out in life to fail. And success and achievement is not necessarily a bad thing. The question is, are we seeking success in the right things? Uh, there's a quote that has done the rounds over the years. Different people have said it in slightly different ways. But it goes along the lines of, it's not failure that I fear. What I fear is being successful in the wrong things. And that really picks up on Jesus' statement earlier on in Matthew's Gospel where he says, you know, what good is it if you gain the whole world? And yet you forfeit your soul. You can have success in all these different areas, but if it's not the right kind of success, what good, what benefit is that success? And so we need to ask that question then. What does it mean to be successful? What is Jesus' definition of success? And we've been looking at that question perhaps from a slightly different angle. We've been looking at the question, what does it mean to be ready. Over these last few weeks, we've been considering that question of readiness. So in Matthew 24, the disciples, they come to Jesus and they'd asked him uh, this question about when is going to be the sign of your coming, the sign of the end of the age. In other words, that, that sign of your glorious arrival, that triumphant procession. And when you bring about your judgment, when you bring about the new creation what is going to be the sign for that? And Jesus said, there is no sign. You don't get ready by looking for the sign. You get ready by being ready. And then there's a series of parables uh, teaching what readiness looks like. Uh, and in Matthew 25, uh, there's a series of parables that build on one another. And if this is your first week in listening uh, to this sermon, I encourage you to go online. You can listen to the sermons from the previous week, Andrew uh, 
looked at the parable of the, the bridesmaids. We looked at the parable of the bags of gold last week. Because these are all building on one another. And in the parable of, of those bridesmaids, the point that we're told is that you need to be ready. You need to be prepared. You need to be wise. There's an emphasis on this personal response. You can't rely on the faith of others. This has to be personally applied. You need to be ready. And then last week in the parable of the bags of gold, we looked at, okay, what's that readiness mean? It's not just this one-off action. It's done and it's finished. But readiness is this continual action. As we consider discipleship uh, demands growth, demands fruitfulness. That's what it means to be ready. Now this week as we come to uh, the parables or perhaps the parabolic saying of the sheep and goats fighting against the wind, uh, we're considering digging into a bit more, well, what does that fruitfulness look like? What does that growth look like? What is that success? Because if we just left it there at the parable of the bags of gold, that we could go off in all manner of directions as to what growth and discipleship looks like. And we could seek success in the wrong things. So we need to take all these parables together. So what does it mean? What does that growth look like? What does success look like? Touched on it last week. We're going to dig down more deeply into it this week uh, as we look then at verses 31 to 46. I'll see what my notes are now. Okay. Uh, let's have a look at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and he will put the goats on his left. And so here Jesus speaks about the Son of Man. It's a phrase uh, that Jesus uses to refer to himself. It's a phrase that comes to us from the book of Daniel. The Son of Man is this uh, human figure that is given all power and all authority. And Jesus says, this is him. On that day, this is the day the disciples have been asking about. So all nations are gathered before him as Jesus exercises all power and all authority. And this language of all nations is reflected later in Matthew's gospel with the Great Commission. You know, go out to all nations. This is speaking of this worldwide, this global perspective. You know, Jew and Gentile. There are people of every tribe and nation brought there before the Son of Man. So this is the day the disciples have been asking about. This is the day that Jesus has been saying, you need to be ready for. You need to be prepared for. And on that day... Jesus said, he, the son of man, he's going to separate the people just as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Now, it's not an image that perhaps is familiar to us in the first century uh, in the Middle East, more so. You would have uh, sheep and goats together as one herd. And the reasons are debated and varied as to at what point a shepherd would separate them into sheep and goats. Uh, but the point here is you've got this group, this group that is together, and then they're going to be separated. They're going to be separated into these two groups. You've got the sheep that are there on the right. You've got the goats that are there on the left. 
And these two groups are given two destinies. If we have a look, the sheep on the right, come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now the sheep are those who are sharing in the blessing, in the glories of Christ. Take your inheritance. Now the kingdom, the inheritance isn't simply eternal life, but it is sharing in the rule and the reign of Christ. The sheep are those who who share in the life of Christ. And then you've got the goats, the goats who are on the left. And they share in the life, the the destiny of the devil and his angels. So verse 41, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. These two destinies, one of eternal life, of glory, and the other of eternal punishment. Jesus goes on to say at the end of the parable. Those are the stakes. And really then, we need to ask, well, what makes a difference between the sheep and the goats? You can have success in all manner of things in life. But at the end of the day, if you are left standing on the left-hand side of the throne, it counts for nothing. Success at this point is, are you counted among the sheep? Now, after this initial illustration of sheep and goats, it's kind of dropped Uh, I'm just going to continue using the term sheep and goats just to make it easier uh, who we're following rather than saying just left and right. So this, the sheep and the goats, the division, what makes the difference between the two? What is the mark of success? What does readiness look like according to this passage? Verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. But this group here, the the sheep, the righteous, they're slightly perplexed uh, by what it is that the king has said. You see in verse 37, the righteous will answer him, Well, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? And they don't question doing these things, but what comes as somewhat of a puzzle to them is that we've done them for the king. Lord, we never saw you in those situations. Uh, How have we ministered to you. How how have we helped you? We didn't see you in need. And Jesus says the king will reply, verse 40, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And that term brothers and sisters is used elsewhere in the gospel. Jesus uses it to speak of his disciples. You may think back to when the people say, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside. And Jesus says, well, Who is my mother? Who's my brother? Who's my sisters? Whoever does the will of my father is my mother and my brother and my sister. But I think the focus and the emphasis here is on the word least. Now, whatever you did for 
the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. Those who were least, those who were insignificant. Now those who were as far away as you can imagine from this image of, of kingliness. And you ministered to them. You see, these people, they, they didn't minister because these people look greater. And you know, these are people that I really want to minister and help. They ministered, they were motivated by love. But then the king turns to the goats, those on the left. And he says, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison and you did not look after me. And similarly, they respond with words not too dissimilar to to the sheep. They're also going to answer verse 44. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or ill and in prison and not help you? Kind of the, the implication of their words is, no, we were ready to help and we were ready to serve. Lord, we would have helped you, the king. We never saw you in need. So like, how, can, how can you say we haven't helped you? The opportunity just, just wasn't there. And I think at this point it's probably worth us just pausing for a second and um, looking at maybe a modern equivalent of this parable. The thing is sometimes when we look at our parables, when we look at parabolic sayings, we can get so caught up and focused in some of the finer details and some of the theological questions that come out of it. Like, well, the, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. Like, what does that mean? Like, just tell me the boundaries, Jesus. Does this mean I've just got to show love to fellow Christians or, or is this do I need to show love to more people? Tell me, what, what's the limit to what I need to do? I want to draw those lines in the sand. And we can get so caught up in those fine details. That that's becomes our focus. Whereas if we just take that step back, and if we look at maybe a modern day equivalent, where we don't have some of those questions, we see the broader narrative. And we see the challenge that it gives us. So we sort of do that last week with The Apprentice. as a modern day equivalent with the bags of gold. Uh, this week we're going for Beauty and the Beast. So if you've not watched it, that can be your homework this week. Uh, 1990 cartoon version I'm talking about here. Uh, Beauty and the Beast is sort of a, certainly the beginning, a modern day equivalent of this parable. And there at the very beginning, we have this prince and now he has everything that he needs. And yet he's selfish, he's spoiled. He's heartless, he's cruel, he's wicked. And one day, he's sitting there in his palace. And there's this knock on the door. It's a cold, stormy winter's night. As he goes out and he opens the door, and there before him is this old beggar woman. He's holding out a rose. And she looks to him and says, I will give you this rose in exchange for shelter from from the bitterness and from the cold. And he looks down at this elderly woman and despises her. Get out of my palace. I want nothing to do with you. Do you think I'm interested 
in a pitiful road. Go away. So a woman warns him, you know, not to make judgments just based on her appearance. Enraged, she drives her out. Get out of my sight. I want nothing to do with you. And at that moment, the old uh, woman is changed and transformed into this beautiful enchantress, we're told. And the prince falls down and he's crying out, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I, I didn't mean any of this. You can come in. I will give you whatever you want. And the enchantress tells him at this point in time, it is too late. His heart has been revealed. You see, if if that prince had seen the enchantress in all her glory, in all her greatness, then of course he would have invited her into the house. Of course he would have provided for her needs because it served him. Yet the way he treated that old beggar woman, it revealed what was already in his heart. And Jesus is making a similar point uh, in his parable here. See, what is it that sets apart the sheep from the goats? It's not simply their actions. I mean, given the right circumstances, their actions probably would have looked very similar. The goats are kind of saying, well, well Lord, if we'd seen you in need, if we'd seen you in need, then of course we would have provided. And of course they're going to provide. They're going to provide that that food and that shelter and that comfort and that clothing because it suits their own need. Given a, a circumstances that are sort of profitable to them, then they probably would have acted in a similar way to the sheep. What is it that separates and sets apart the sheep from the goats? It's not simply their actions. It goes deeper into what is going on in their hearts. And that means if the application that we have of this parable is just simply, you know, we need to make sure that we love and we care for the poor and the destitute in our actions good thing to do, but if that is simply the application that we get as we read this parable, then the words of this parable have not dug deep enough into our hearts. Discipleship demands growth. Fruitfulness is required, but what does this fruitfulness look like? And it's not a fruitfulness that is simply measured by an outward performance. See, these are our lives that reflect the life of the sheep. They reflect that of the king. They reflect that of Christ, a life that is shared that reflects that of Christ. The goats are those who share in the life, who reflect the life of the devil and his angels. Why is it that the righteous in this parable meet the needs of those who are despised, those who have no worldly great attraction. It's because they reflect the heart of the king, not just because they've extended their scope of ministry. What growth looks like, what success looks like, we see from this parable, is a change and a transformation within our hearts. 
Now, we considered last week the growth uh, is going to look different, different people, different times. It's an ongoing thing. This isn't something that is done until the day that Jesus returns. But it is something we see from this parable, something that needs to go deep. The readiness means more than being seen to do the right thing. Growth is not simply Jesus is coming, so look busy. Some bumper stickers would have us believe. The point is that Jesus is coming, and so a change and a transformation needs to happen, and that change and transformation is this naturally supernatural outworking of the life of Christ within the people of Christ. As we come to uh, apply this parable, this is where it gets tricky for us. Because we've read it, we know the punchline. We can easily deceive ourselves. Because we know what the goats didn't know. Don't we, in reading this, we know that the the people that you're ministering to, that the poor and the destitute, I mean, ultimately, it's a ministry to Jesus. And what is to stop us then just deceiving ourselves and seeking to love one another because we're trying to curry favor with the king? Now, we could easily just focus on changing our actions as we read something like this without seeking that changing transformation that occurs in our hearts. As it's been said before and said again, that behavior modification is not the same as gospel transformation. What is called for, what is needed here, is gospel transformation. Because that prince in Beauty and the Beast, now if he knew how the story went, well, of course he's going to be kind to the old beggar woman because he knows really that she's a, a beautiful, powerful enchantress. And he's going to meet her needs, not because that is a reflection of his heart. Now that is because it's an overflow of his heart, but just because it suits his needs. You see, this is why our righteous acts can be counted as filthy rags in God's sight. Now our actions reveal something of our hearts, but they can't redeem our hearts. It flows out. It doesn't just flow in. There is a danger that we read something like this and our application I could become very shallow. We just focus on all the things that we need to do and then we think when we're doing them that we're fine and we're sorted and we're okay and we're ready and we deceive ourselves into thinking we're ready when we're not. It's one of the challenges, I said, once we know the punchline. So, if you feel like that, let me ask you, uh, how do you respond? How do you move towards those that you are most tempted to overlook. And that, that may not be the poor and the destitute. It may even be members of your own family. When your guard is down, when the heat is on, when there's pressure, when it is costly to love, what comes out then? Because what comes out is what's in there. Your circumstances don't affect what it is that comes out. Whatever comes out has already been in there. 
In those instances, how do you respond? And when I reflect on my life, I say, I don't measure up. I fall short. And so my hope, my confidence cannot be in myself and just multiplying ministries. That is not what success is going to look like on that day. Our hope, our security is not in our ability to multiply what we do. So where is our hope? Heart transformation is required. Well, as we read on, read on to the next chapter. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. When Jesus finished saying what? Finished saying these parables about being ready, what readiness looks like. And for us to be ready, Jesus needs to go ahead. He needs to make a way for the Son of Man to have sheep. The Son of Man must first be handed over to be crucified. And at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, when the angel appears to Joseph, and he says to him, you are to name this child Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Not simply give them forgiveness for their sins, but save them from their sins. Jesus hasn't come to leave us in a sin-sick state. He's come to bring us this wholeness and this healing, this change and this transformation. Jesus has come to rescue us from the sin-sick hearts that we have. And that is why he has come. And sometimes when we are challenged with words like like this in a parable, when we reflect on the situations in life and we see how far short we fall, that I do not love as I ought to love. Our temptation can be to busy ourselves with things, to convince ourselves that we are loving. Our temptation can be to run away and to hide. And yet Jesus is the one who has come that we might be changed and that we might be transformed. And though we can feel ashamed that we do not love in the way that we ought to love, and that we want to run away and we want to hide, the call, the need, is that we come to Christ, that we move towards Him, that we don't move away. Because He has not moved away from us. And that same Christ who reached out His hand to the leprous, in order to heal them, reaches out to us to heal the leprosy of our hearts. So this is what it means for us to be ready, to come, to continue to come to Christ, that this work of His is worked deeply within our hearts, that we settle for nothing less than a change and a transformation. Not because we're able. Not because we have the power and the ability to do it. But because we have a great God and Savior. For this purpose he has come. In order that we may share in the life of Christ. Now even in the sufferings and struggles that we may too share in that glory. Be counted among the righteous. 
And Jesus came so that we may be counted righteous and that we may be conformed to that righteousness. It's an ongoing work. So let's seek him and pray now. Father, we thank you for your great love and your mercy towards us. For we recognize, as we see even glimpses within our own hearts, Lord, how little we love. And yet you are the God who is abundant in love and in mercy. And we thank you because of the abundance of your love and your mercy, because of who you are. You have not despised us and cast us off, but that you have sent us a great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But to save us from the sickness of our own hearts. We thank you that you have given of your very own spirit that we may live lives that flow not from ourselves, but but flow from the the all-sufficient, ever-giving, grace-empowered, Lord, life. Lord, your life. Lord, help us to see the, the, the depth of the work that you would do in our lives, the height to which you have called us, and sharing in this life of Christ. Lord, empower us by your spirit, that we may love one another deeply, Lord, from the heart. The true change and transformation, Lord, brought about by your great mercy and love towards us in Christ. Amen.